Good morning, everybody. I invite you to turn to page 740, Daniel 4. We're doing a series on Daniel. We'll look at Daniel 4 today, page 740. And you can follow along as I read this passage. I'll pray for us briefly. First, if you would like to have the Bible that's there, you're free to take it. It's our gift to you. Allow me to pray for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please reveal yourself to us. We thank you that you invite us to pray this with hope. Despite the things we don't understand about you, despite inward resistance we sometimes have to hear from you, to acknowledge you, despite the swirl of confusing ideas and ideologies in this world, Despite our inability to get to you, you came to us and revealed and spoke and revealed yourself most fully and finally in Jesus Christ, your Son. And so we thank you that you've invited us to ask, to seek, to knock. And you've promised that you would answer, you would come, you would reveal. Please do that now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a really fun, crazy passage. So I'm going to read portions of it, pause just a couple times. Please listen to God's word as we read this together. We're going to read the whole chapter. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, so this is an interesting piece of scripture. There's many pieces of scripture where God speaks to a prophet and says, Go say this to my people. This is King Nebuchadnezzar sharing. King Nebuchadnezzar would like to share, and he's just writing this little memo to all the people of earth. (laughs) If you mind, I would like to, it seemed good to me to show some things that God showed me. This is King Nebuchadnezzar's youth group talk. You know, if he was on the youth group circuit, this is his story. This is his testimony. This is what God has showed him. This is what he would like to share. And it's what God apparently did for a pagan king who, as we're going to learn, was a super powerful man. And he would like to share it with us. And this became part of the book of Daniel. So let's, let's listen to a story. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in my bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who is named Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these... I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. 
The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amidst the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living might know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belshazzar, tell me its interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And just pause here a second. What do you think the dream means? There's some really wild, opaque dreams in Daniel that are really hard to interpret. This one actually isn't a total stumper. Okay? This really powerful king has a dream about a big tree that reaches up to heaven and it blesses the whole earth. And the, the tree is cut down. And this messenger from the Most High cuts down the tree, which is described in the dream as a person. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And there's this apparent cutting down of this powerful tree. And he goes crazy for a while. And then even the sort of the, the lesson of the dream is shared. This dream is so that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, gives it to whom he will, and sets it over the lowliest of men. Seems like it's sort of a message for the king. Seems like that's the lesson. And there's some humility to be learned here. There's some gratitude. Now, you have to ask yourself, so King Nebuchadnezzar summons all the wise men, the astrologers, all the enchanters. If it's kind of not hard to interpret, why didn't they tell him? Well, it's a really tough message for King Nebuchadnezzar. It's not a, no one wants to sign their name at the top of the clipboard. I would like to tell King Nebuchadnezzar some really hard news. No one's excited about that. And yet Nebuchadnezzar asks Daniel, who has spoken for God before, to tell him the interpretation of the dream. And we're going to see, as we discuss greatness and humility, that there are things at work in us and part of us and sin in us that makes it hard to see what is obvious. Did you know that about yourself? There's actually spiritual forces at work in you that can blind you 
to see what is obvious that can make it hard to admit what ought to be easy to admit that can actually shield you from seeing part of what you need to see about yourself in order to be healed. That's actually true for all of us. But Daniel is going to help out King Nebuchadnezzar. Look at what happens. Let's follow along. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered him and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven and was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, and the tender grass of the field. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is, a, it is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall, you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots in the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? 
that time my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty, and my splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. This is God's word. Now, what is the path to greatness? What is the path? What gets us off the path? And what's the spiritual transformation that we need to achieve the greatness that actually God calls us to seek? Bragging takes different forms. There's the bragging of the gangster rappers. It's real obvious. Look at what I own. Uh, you know, look at look at these. Look at all the, all that I have. There's the subtle bragging on social media. Uh, for instance, the soccer moms about their kids. Most of us are trickier when they're bragging. The trick is to to slightly point out awesome things about yourself, but make it look effortless so you're, you're concealing that you're trying to point out what you've accomplished what's the heart behind that John Stott real helpful servant of the church in England for a long time wrote a book on pride humility it's called pride humility and God and in it he says this at no point does the gospel come into more violent collision with the world than its insistence on humility is the paramount virtue the wisdom of the world despises humility Western culture has been greatly influenced, often unconsciously, by the power philosophy of Nietzsche, who visioned the emergence of a, quote, daring and ruler race. His hero was the ubermensch, Superman, the tough, brash, masculine, and overbearing, who would become, quote, a lord of the earth. But if the ideal of Nietzsche was the Superman, the ideal of Jesus was the little child, there is no possibility of compromise between these two alternative modes. We are obliged to choose. What is the path to greatness? What's wrong with us so that we're often not on it, so we often view it incorrectly? And what's the spiritual transformation that we need? We're going to talk about the path of our problem, the path to healing, and the path, the true path to greatness. Now, the problem. What is the problem? Here's the thing. So, let's, let's look at Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar is warned really clearly in this dream. It's not exactly a huge mystery. Acknowledge that what you have is from God. Acknowledge that the power you have. He says this crazy thing. Remember what he says? It's not this great Babylon which I've built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Whenever you say that, you're having a moment. <laughs> Whenever you say that, look at how great and this is. Look at what I've accomplished for my glory. It's a moment of real blindness. And he's disciplined by God for it. Now, Daniel has a tough job of telling the king the dream. And he's very compassionate towards him. He warns the king, you know, stop sinning. Those who are on top, who have power and influence or success, 
their attitude towards those who haven't achieved that same amount of success is related to their humility. Your attitude towards those, what's your attitude towards those who are poor, maybe their families are a total mess, who have problems you don't have? It's often those hard for those on top who achieve success in anything. It could be family, it could be business, it could be athletics. Without deep humility to have, it's hard for them to have deep compassion on other people. The sentence is passed on him and is a dream, in the dream, and he doesn't get it. And he has a year to reflect on it. Why would it be hard for him to get? A couple things going on here. One, he's really, really famous. He is the most powerful person in the world. Obama, our president, is called the most powerful person in the world. He has terms. He has Congress that he needs to deal with. Nebuchadnezzar had none of that. Nebuchadnezzar didn't have anyone make fun of him ever on late night TV. It didn't happen. There was no one to challenge him. You've heard of the seven great wonders of the world, seven wonders of the ancient world. Two of them were in Babylon. One was the hanging gardens that he built for his wife. Reminded her of Persia, where she grew up. Builder of hanging gardens. Another one was the wall that went around Babylon that was so big and so massive and so impressive, it was said that two chariots drawn by four horses apiece could pass each other on the top. It was massive. Babylon looked untouchable as a military power, and it made people feel safe. They said, Who could touch us? The palace, probably the one that he's on right now, he built for his wife. It was called the Marvel of Mankind. And he looks at all this and he says that crazy thing. Look at what I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Now, something is obviously being communicated to Nebuchadnezzar, but obviously all political leaders. And if you've been following along with us in Babylon, there's this theme of idolatry. Nebuchadnezzar gets a vision of this huge statue in Daniel 2. It's a vision of a huge statue. And the statue stands for different kingdoms. And there are different pieces of the statue stand for different kingdoms that are to come. And Nebuchadnezzar says, you know, that statue in the dream was awesome. I think I'm going to build one of those. And he does. And well, Kenny preached on that last week. And he commands the peoples of the earth to bow down to it. And something is being said to Nebuchadnezzar about the source of his power. Something hasn't sunk in. Now, idols are whatever we tend to trust instead of God. John Stott was one of the many people pointing out idols are not just an ancient people problem, but they're whatever we trust to fix our lives, to heal the earth, whatever we look to for our ultimate significance, whatever we look to for our ultimate security, it's how we fill in the big blanks. The big blanks, I'm significant because because I've achieved this relationship, because I'm loved by so-and-so, because I'm successful, I'm a self-made man. 
can be what we have achieved. It can be what we hope to. It's our, our idols are if onlys. When you say, if only this, then life would be full. If only this. If only I successfully planted a church and I would show that I'm not a failure like my father and I've actually done something good in the world. Church planning can be an idol. Christian service can be an idol. Our money can be an idol. A specific relationship can be an idol. See, if only someone like her would love me. There are often good things that we elevate. But idols, here's the thing about idols. They don't deliver what they promise, and they always break our hearts in the end. You put all that freight on that bridge, that bridge is bound to collapse. You put all that weight on that cane, it's going to slip out, and you're going to fall on your face. And only resting everything we are on Jesus will lead to increasing freedom instead of increasing slavery. And we're about to learn this. Now, I'll apply this politically because Nebuchadnezzar is a political leader. Something's being said to him about his political power, but something is also being said about all political power. This is actually a timely to reflect on because in our nation, you know, we're coming up on an election year, 2016. We're going to think about political leaders a lot. And here are a couple signs of one kind of idol, political idolatry. What does political idolatry look like? Uh, Tim Keller talks about a few of these in uh, a book called Counterfeit Gods. And uh, Uncle Tim Keller is going to help me out with a few of these. So I just wanted to reference him. One sign of political idolatry, we actually encourage political leaders to claim to have the silver bullet. To claim to have the answer. Remember Alan Iverson, his first tattoo was called the was the answer. We are actually tend encourage political leaders to claim to make huge claims, to make Nebuchadnezzar like claims. If, if you get on board with me, I really am gonna fix this. It's all gonna work out. You know, we don't tend to vote for people or I'm just gonna try my best. We are kind of gridlocked here. I don't know what I can accomplish. I'll do my best. Sorry, I'm not promising a whole lot. It's not gonna work. We tend to have elevated hopes. We actually encourage that. There's something deep in the human heart that encourages that. Remember when Obama was running for the office of Messiah in 2008? Remember the hope poster? Now, I'm not uh, especially trying to pick on Obama. He didn't make that poster. Shepard Ferry made that poster. And he's since made fun of that. You know, what kind of a guy would put his picture of his face on a poster with hope on it? But we actually, we ask too much. We hope too much. Related to this, second sign of political idolatry, there's fear and dismay to a crazy degree when the other side wins. Now, when the other side wins, I don't know who you voted for. I'm frankly not concerned about that. But when you act like all hope is lost... And if you start saying things, not my governor, not my leader, not my president, I'm tempted to go live on a boat in the middle of the ocean. I want Vermont to be a satellite campus of Texas. And we're just, I want to be a separate country. I'm going to go to Sweden. 
when there's a sense all is lost when your political leader is, uh, is loses that's a sign of political idolatry you're alarmed you, you don't just say I'm disappointed I disagree when and this happens Facebook is one of the many social network engines that ramps this up when there's a sense that the other side is not just mistaken but evil to the core that's a sign of political idolatry you can't acknowledge anything good or understandable about another point of view it's a sign of political idolatry third sign the cycle of overblown hopes and then disillusionment. Overblown hopes and then disillusionment. Uh, Americans in this moment are largely blind to their functional spirituality. Everyone has one. A lot of people say, I'm spiritual, not religious. If you want to know what someone's religion is, you ask them, what do you think's wrong with the world? What would it take to fix it? What's wrong with the world? That's your functional religion. Communism really sounded good. You know, you guys know how people don't share their stuff. You've seen that, right? Been a part of that. What if we could solve that? What if we just shared everything? Wouldn't that be heaven on earth? That would be great, wouldn't it? Just share and killed millions and millions and millions of people. There was a there was a book in 1949 written by six ex-communists. Know what it was called? The God that failed. The God that failed didn't work. That was a lie. They bring peace on earth. Look at all the people we've killed. The ends don't justify the means, and it's not working. We just empowered new dictators. And the pendulum, as it so often does in history, history is like a drunk driver on the road. Hey, let's go over this side and have some crashes. Oh, no, let's go over here. The free market. Man, the invisible hand of the free market is just going to give everybody a hug. The invisible hand of the free markets. Let's just have all that be free. Let's just see how much we're blessed. And the invisible hand of the free market choked everybody in 2008. Slapped it. Slapped the world silly. Thank you, Invisible Hand of the Free Markets. And there was a 2009 book, referencing the earlier book, The Gods That Failed, How Blind Faith in Markets Cost Us Our Future. Now, the answer is not to reject politics. We actually need good politicians. We need good policies. We need good government. But the answer is not to make little mini-gods out of our leaders or our ideas. Idolatry affects how we view others. It's a funhouse mirror. It makes big things small and small things big. Idolatry also affects how we view ourselves. It makes parts of you that are actually small really big and other parts that are big and minimizes that problem. So if someone has a lying problem, they ought to be able to say, I lie. And instead they say, actually, sometimes I stretch the truth slightly to protect the feelings of other people. We tend not to see what we need to see. Now, what's the heart condition under this? A guy named Reinhold Niebuhr 
was a theologian in the mid-20th century. He's reflecting all this on this during World War II. I don't agree with a lot of what he said, but he said this, and it was really insightful and powerful. He said that, look, human beings have been struggling to admit their dependence since the beginning of time. We're dependent on God. We're helpless. Let's just admit it, how much of life we can't control. You really can't. You think you're in control until your job's taken away, you've always thought it would be there, or until your child's not doing what you want, or your spouse, whom you trusted, you realize you can't change the way they're looking at life, and you experience a new helplessness. What's the human problem? Reinhold Niebuhr says, look, in the Garden of Eden, we threw off God's limits and refused to admit dependence. Adam and Eve could have chose, chosen to live under God. You've given us one rule. Don't eat from the tree. Actually, we're struggling with that. Living under that, being dependent on that, being dependent on you. Could we be God on our own? That sounds good. And now this is part of human nature. It's actually part of human nature to refuse to admit dependence. Let's reflect, because this isn't just a message for Nebuchadnezzar. As powerful as he is, it's in our Bible because it's something we need to hear, how dependent we are. Let me give you a list of things you haven't chosen. You didn't choose who your parents were or when you were born. You were born in the 1920s. You were growing up in the Great Depression. You know, you were born at a certain time in our country. You're drafted for military service. You didn't choose your parents when you were born. Your genes, how your parents acted. Unless you get peace with God about this and you acknowledge your dependence on God and your helplessness before Him, you do have duties and callings, you do, but unless you get peace with God, you'll, you'll be wrecked. There's a message in our culture, we really rage against this. We encourage athletes, okay, an athlete has won a championship. What do we have to learn from this? And a six foot eight athlete will say, you can be anything you want to, kids. <laughs> hey, you are six foot eight. Foot eight you know? I'm not taking anything away from hard work. But let's zoom out for a second. Okay, there's, there's, we do want to encourage hope and hard work, but if it's all up to you, the people on top, you get the credit. You get the glory. If, you, if it's really all up to you and you've achieved. I thought this was a ridiculous article on time.com. The article on time.com said, the five paths for being the best in anything. Are you ready to be enlightened? Here we go. The five paths to be the best in anything. Number one, 10,000 hours of practice. What's that mean? It means you've got to start early. You've got to start as a child. Someone's got to see your potential and come alongside you at the right moment. I was thinking about uh, Ben Olsen. He was a soccer star at D.C. United from the Harrisburg area and now a coach. Um, amazing ability. He talked about how his mom drove him 
to multi-state traveling teams, and he was encouraged in all the right ways growing up. Uh, his, he had a family member come to Christ at Liberty East and perform their wedding, so I got to know him just a little bit. It was interesting. He had the humility to acknowledge that. My parents didn't do what they did in the Harrisburg area and walked thousands of miles for having me. I wouldn't be Ben Olsen. 10,000 hours of practice. Thank you, time.com. Second key to being the best at anything, have the right genes. Thank you, I'll get to work on that. That was great. Third, be part of a great team. You can't control that. I'll just go on. What's Nebuchadnezzar called to admit? He's called to admit something that's hard for him, that everything he has is from God. And not only is he called to this, we are. What you have, what you've achieved. And actually, it's part of human nature to do this with anything. The Corinthian church, one of their fights that they had is they argued about whose spiritual gifts were the greatest. They had a bunch of spiritual leaders and apparently had these arguments uh, about whose spiritual gifts were better and just who was better in general and they didn't treat the poor very nice they kind of, sort of made them stand in the back while the rich people had communion first and it was a mess and the apostle Paul says to them what makes you different from anyone else 1 Corinthians 4 what do you have that you have not received what do you have that you have not received and if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? Just let that sink in. What do we have that we have not received? And if we did, why do we, why do we act like we haven't? Man, would that level the playing field? Men, would that lead to some gratitude toward God? Would that lead to some love and understanding for other people? So what's the path to greatness? It is part, it is this radical humbling. The path to greatness, the path for healing, it always includes radical humbling. The, the irony of sin is that when we claim to be God, God-like, we become beast-like. Nebuchadnezzar tries to be like God and he actually degrades himself. And sin, ironically, always fails to deliver and gets us that way in the end. Someone says, look, I can do what I want. I'm free. No, you're addicted to porn. Look what I did. Look what I've achieved. No, your greed owns you. You you actually think you have more power? What you own owns you now. Sin always fails. And Nebuchadnezzar is forced to admit this. God takes away his mental capacity. And the seven seasons, it was a long time. His hair grew, his nails grew. Might be seven years, might be seven months. And at the end, he acknowledges what is true. He acknowledges that God is God and he is not. And he extols, honors, and praises the God of heaven. I praise, extol, and honor the King of heaven. For his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Now, at this point in history, we can think about another king. See, the Bible tells us a 
of another kind of king who's sort of the anti-Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was a man who claimed to be God. There was another king who was God and actually humbled himself willingly and became man. Who humbled himself and made himself nothing and gave us actually a different model to follow. Who took disciples who were arguing about who was the greatest disciple and had a little kid stand in the middle and said, unless you become like little children, you won't even enter the kingdom of God. Uh, Put the Philippians 2 on there. Have this mind among yourselves. And the church is being reminded of this. They're having trouble getting along in Philippians. And Paul's trying to get them to hug it out in the gospel. And he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, then emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven on earth and under the earth, that every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have a different model. We have a model of a savior, savior who humbled himself. And uh, there's a pastor in Philadelphia named Jack Miller who put it this way. Uh, the way up is down. The way up is down. The way to grow is to humble yourself. You can't become a Christian without a humbling. You've got to admit that God would, the holy judge of the universe would judge your life. You've got to admit I am a sinner. The the God of the universe, whom I am accountable to, would judge me for my sins lest Jesus does His work in my place. Lest Jesus dies for my sins, you will pay for your sins forever. That's humbling. The way to grow as a Christian is apparently the gospel. Because the Apostle Paul's constantly telling this. Scripture screams us out this all the time. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The way to grow as a Christian is humbling. And then worship happens. You see, whatever you have is from God. And what you don't have, Jesus has given you. You actually have a different kind of king. Uh, the heart of a king who became man in your place to die in your place and be raised from the dead to give you grace to give you what you don't deserve what you could never earn that leads to worship and there's a new path we actually elevate servanthood Christians have different ideals Christians think like you know actually being on setup team serving in ways that no one ever sees and no one will thank you. That's awesome. Praying in secret where no one will see you. Jesus says that's precious. And being willing to be last. Jesus said the first will be last, the last will be first. The greatest in the kingdom aren't going to be those who are network directors or on the radio in the name of Jesus. Jesus said the last are first and the first are last and all that's going to be sorted out one day 
And Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And so should we. That's the path to greatness. The way up is down. And even now, coming to the table, I'm preaching this behind the table, where to receive this, you have to admit your need, you have to admit Jesus came for you, died for you, you have to admit that living out of union with Jesus is what gives you spiritual life. You have to admit that everything you have is from Jesus, your Savior. You come, you know, there's not a form to fill out about your greatness that you've achieved this week, that you turn in and then you're approved to the Lord's table. There's only one, you know, a couple lines. There's not a line for the great people, the spiritual overachievers, the Eagle Scouts of Liberty Harrisburg, and everybody else. There's one line. We come, like everybody, and receive Jesus in worship. Down is the new up. Uh, Let's humble ourselves and receive from Christ. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we admit that we are prone to seek safety and significance and all these other idols. We thank you that you came to rescue us. Thank you that admitting our helplessness, admitting what's hard to admit about ourselves is actually the path to freedom. We pray for our joy in you that we would experience that. We pray for our freedom that we'd experience that. We pray for your glory and our worship of you, that we'd experience gospel humbling that would lead to gospel exaltation. Come to us, Lord. Feed us and meet us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We come now to the Lord's table. We remember how Jesus, he took bread. And after he'd given thanks and prayer to the Father,